Welcome to the PhD Podcast Project from Yale's Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. In each episode, we will interview graduate students in different programs at Yale to learn about the exciting work being done at the frontiers of research. We will dive into the motivations behind their work and how it may impact our lives and those of future generations. I am Alvin, a first-year PhD student in CS. I'm excited to talk today with Shoiti. Hello. 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 A third-year PhD student in biomedical engineering. I am Shoiti Srabunti Haldar, and I am a third-year PhD student in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. Awesome, yeah. And, and uh, what exactly are you researching? So my research uses engineered heart tissues to study different cardiac diseases, and my specific project focuses on a certain mutation in a protein called tropomycin uh, that is mainly prevalent in certain families. Cool, cool. And so, like, if you had to give an elevator pitch to, to someone who maybe didn't know much about cardiology or, or heart biology or anything like that, like, what would you say that you really do in the lab all day? Yeah, so heart diseases take many lives every year. And... Um, a lot of the times, the cause of heart failure is not known. Uh, it is not always that the person has a bad diet or doesn't exercise, but sometimes the cause is genetic, as in they have a mutation running in the family that they were born with, and they probably don't even know it until they start showing symptoms. And lots of young people die of familial mutations at a very early age, randomly, even before presenting any symptoms of heart failure. So um, it is very difficult to f identify all these mutations and screen them and understand what this mutation does. In my research, we use engineered heart tissue uh, where we make a tiny piece of heart and we can customize it any way we want. So we can insert any mutation we want, we can treat it any way we want with drugs to figure out how the mutation impacts um, the heart tissue and also how different drugs can affect or alleviate effects of such a mutation. So it is a great testing bed for different heart-related diseases and also different um, drugs uh, that cure these diseases. And this is better than waiting to test it in animals, which is in vivo. Typically, you have mice studies, uh, but mice are f very different from humans yeah. uh, and they take a long time to grow not very cost effective and you are killing a uh, life in doing yeah, that so yeah, the psychological yeah. aspect of it so with engineered heart tissues you just get around all those problems but still get a lot of um, good reliable physiologically relevant data yeah i remember when i was doing like undergrad biology experiments and stuff a lot of the papers that we would review and talk about talked a lot about like experimenting on animals and doing things like that i remember a few of my friends doing biology when they were undergrads they actually like got really queasy at those parts those were like kind of big turnoffs for some of those people i think some of them actually like switched majors and stuff because the animal cruelty is always like super surprising yes absolutely i could not do it and i'm so happy that i'm instead in a tissue engineering lab <laughs> which also sounds very cool <laughs> yeah yeah definitely i remember when when we were uh, going over like the survey responses and everything that one definitely stuck out to us 
I'm I'm a little curious, like where is the lab and like how does it work and and all of that. Yeah, so our lab is on Prospect Street, 55 Prospect, this very uh, newish building, which is, stands out among Yale's old architecture. It's right across from the cemetery. But yeah, it's a completely a research building, and only biomedical engineering labs are in that building primarily. Yeah, so uh, growing a heart tissue... It also takes uh, some time and preparation, mm-hmm. but it's way easier than you would have to, uh, way easier than uh, growing an animal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what we do is we actually go to a slaughterhouse and we obtain big hearts uh, from the slaughterhouse. And we bring those hearts back. Uh, they sell that to us, I think, for $50, $50. for one, one heart. I guess yeah. like, since people... Some people eat hearts and stuff, right? So I guess it can't be too crazy expensive. I guess, but I think they were going to throw that away, but once they realize there is a demand for that, (laughs) they do charge us for that. So, yeah, we bring it uh, to our lab, and we chop it up. We, you know, make nice blocks from that heart. Mm -hmm. Uh, We try to get the left ventricular portion because that's what uh, we are mostly interested in. And then we freeze that, and then it basically is a solid block. Um, We are freezing it at very cold temperature, like minus 80 and then we slice them, and the slices are very thin, as in 150 microns thin. And uh, we slice them using a cryostat, and then you have these tiny sheets of like heart tissue, big heart tissue, mm-hmm. right? Sorry, just for, just for the listeners out there, what's a cryostat? Yeah. A cryostat is a device that, where you can mount frozen blocks of anything, and you can take very precise slices mm, okay, okay. from that. Yeah, so then you have these thin films of heart tissue, which then we use a laser cutter to sort of cut out rectangular two-dimensional pieces from there. Um, Yeah, it's just like, you know, when you would do cutout in kindergarten, (laughs) kind of like that. But yeah, so once you have those rectangular pieces, uh, we have to decellularize them first. Mm. So we want to make sure there is no pig cells in there. So we kill all the cells in that pig scaffold so that all that it's left with is just the structure, but no really living component from the pig anymore. And then we introduce human cells to it. And the human cells inhabit that scaffold. And after you have grown them uh, for a little bit, they they start beating. Now, these cells can be of various origins, whatever you want, whatever your project needs. But previously, we have done cells taken directly from a patient. Uh, We actually try to get stem cells from patients. So if there is one single person with a certain mutation, we can just get their stem cells, we can make cardiomyocytes, which means heart cells, Mm -hmm. from the stem cells. So uh, I know people hear a lot about stem cells. I can explain what that means. Um, Stem cells are cells that have the potential to become any other kind of cells. They're called pluripotent, as in they have the potential to become anything else Mm -hmm. if they get the right cues. So we give them the right cues so they eventually turn into cardiomyocytes, which are heart cells. And then we put those heart cells into the scaffold. And after growing them uh, in uh, following a certain protocol, they will start beating. And 
then you can essentially characterize what would happen to that person if this drug was given or if, you know, this mutation worsens uh, or in like 10 years because um, in engineered heart tissue time, the timeline is much more accelerated because it's such a tiny strip of tissue. The pipeline is at this point very straightforward to us because we have been working on it for so long. Yeah, so the total culture time from the day you um, put the cells in uh, to the day um, that you're ready to test is two weeks. So within two weeks time frame, the uh, tissues are matured enough and they have been in culture enough for the mutation phenotype to start showing for us to see some changes. Obviously, before this culture period, you are doing multiple things at the same time, like you're making sure you have all the equipment, you go get the heart pieces, you're uh, you know, processing all of that, you're also growing the stem cells. The growth of the stem cells are also something that you have to do on the side. Stem cells take a lot of time to differentiate into those special heart cells. About um, how long uh, do you think the, the stem cell differentiation? So part? the stem cell differentiation part is another three weeks mm, or so, okay, and okay. then two weeks once they're turned into tissues. Um, so about five weeks of prep time, but then each round you are doing a big batch, mm. and yeah, you could do like 30 tissues each time, or um, yeah, and then also you don't really do one and then wait for five weeks and then start the next one. Yeah, so it's sort of all going parallelly through the pipeline. So yeah, we uh, churn out probably more than 100 tissues a month at this point per person. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. So it's literally like you have just 100 copies of a single person's heart tissue mm-hmm. or like whatever you know, sort of mutation you're looking at, you yes. have a bunch of copies that you can experiment on. Exactly. With, with different drugs and things like that. Yes, exactly. Wow. Okay. That's cool, that's cool. What, you, what what actually, like, got you into this whole field as, you know, when you were an undergrad or when you were even younger than that? Like, yeah. how did this all get started? So I can talk about my high school a little bit. Um so I, I went to high school in Bangladesh. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Dhaka, uh, and I went to uh, a very good school uh, called Sunnydale. And um, growing up, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So until the 10th grade, I didn't even know if I wanted to do science or like business because mm-hmm. I liked everything. Mm-hmm. But it was more like towards the end of that, I was realizing that I really like biology, but then I also really like math. Mm-hmm. And then the only subject, I did some research, and the only subject that seemed to need both of these two and utilize components for from both of these two subjects was biomedical engineering, which is why I sort of strayed away from pure biology or pure math because I wanted to do both. And, um, yeah, so I, and I came to the U.S. in 2015, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I was admitted to Columbia University, nice. and um, I uh, decided to do the BME major. I was very decided that I'm going to do that from day one. And also, funnily, I was checking back at my common application back when <laughs> right, I applied right, right, yeah. and they asked what do you want to be in the future and I did say I want to do a PhD <laughs> so I don't remember actively thinking oh I'll get a PhD someday in high school but somehow I wrote that down That's <laughs> so, amazing. Yeah. 
just so, a straight shot through, like, um, undergrad and everything. You just always want to do biomedical engineering. Yes. So at Columbia, I joined a lab, which uh, was a lab I really wanted to join, even before going there, because it just seemed fascinating. So mm-hmm. they were also a tissue engineering lab. Mm-hmm. So like I explained, uh, tissue engineering sort of allows you to test different diseases. It's a testing bed for diseases and drugs and different methods of, you know, uh, understanding the disease progression. Mm-hmm. Um And this lab was tissue engineering, but in the field of orthopedics. So they were looking at osteoarthritis. Um, And back then, I know that my grandma had was like really in a lot of pain from Mm. lifelong osteoarthritis. And I was like, oh, there is no cure for this disease. Maybe I can go learn a thing or two about it. So that was like my motivation for joining that. But then I discovered this whole other field of tissue engineering. And when I was applying to PhD programs, Programs. I knew that whatever I wanted to do next, I wasn't married to orthopedics specifically, but I wanted to do something that used tissue engineering to answer these questions because I thought it was so, um, so cool. <laughs> you know, we're covering that sort of as the main theme for this podcast uh, episode. So if you could talk a little bit more about like your background in, in Bangladesh and like and things like that, moving over here, what that was like. Any experiences that stood out to you while you were getting used to the U.S.? Yes, of course. So, I grew up in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned in Taka, which is um, the capital city. It's the metropolitan city. Mm-hmm. So, I did grow up in a very protected environment. Dhaka, in general, is a very unsafe city. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, you know, it's it's not safe for children uh, or, you know, teenagers even mm. to travel alone uh, from school to home or vice versa. Mm. So you always would want to have like someone, a guardian accompanying you. And both my parents were working. Mm. So I come from a very uh, middle class family um, in Dhaka. Um, and yeah, I have, it's my mom, my dad, and, um, me and my sister. I have a younger sister. My parents were both lawyers. My mom's a human rights lawyer. My dad's a corporate lawyer. So it was natural, uh, you know, everyone, all my relatives would say, oh, so you're probably going to be a lawyer, right? (laughs) But I used to feel that, um, black and white is not I am a very I like colors <laughs> that was my first aversion towards the field of law and I was good in science so I sort of moved away from that um black and white so like was it always just because your parents would be wearing like yes like, uh, yeah like yeah white white shirt and then the black robe um that lawyers typically oh, yeah, wear yeah, I know yeah, that yeah. here I think s- suits are more common mm. but in Bangladesh people still w- wear what we would have wore, worn during the colonial times so uh, okay okay <laughs> I see I see yeah so when I first came to Colombia um I did not expect to get in because it is very yeah it's Colombia <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it, it was when when I did get in um it was nowadays I know that fortunately Bangladesh has more Ivy League alumni right um, right of course but back when I was applying in 2015 uh, I'm sure there were others but it was so unheard of or just that in my circle I just didn't know anyone so 
everyone really tried to discourage me. Like, don't apply so high. You're not going to get in anywhere. Just, you know, uh, curb your ambitions a little bit. So um, I was definitely all of that. But my parents were like, do whatever you want. Because they also because they didn't know about this process. They were just experimenting with me, I guess. So uh, when I did get into Colombia, my parents were overwhelmingly happy. And uh, they actually came to help me settle down right yeah, and the yeah, other yeah. thing was it was the the cost was a big big factor for me and we it was out of our expectations that columbia was going to offer a complete full ride so <laughs> i could attend because um i know i mentioned that you know i come from a middle class family but when you convert that gross income into u.s dollars with the exchange rate <laughs> it is oh, it is boy. like really even below minimum wage if oh, you're working oh, full times so, yeah, so that income is allows us to, you know, sustain a decent lifestyle back in Bangladesh, but we <laughs> couldn't pay even a tenth of um, the ex- educational expenses mm-hmm. over here. So I was super, super lucky that uh, I got that opportunity, and my parents were very happy, so they came to get me settled in. It was hard to say goodbye to them. I remember that when I first came to New York, so this is the other thing. Growing up in Bangladesh, I um, identify as a religious minority Mm -hmm. in Bangladesh. So Bangladesh is a a country that's majority Muslims. Yeah, yeah. And my family um, is Hindu. So so there was some kinds of, like, um, uh, discriminations or, um, you know, microaggression incidences that often happened so my parents were always uh, keen on making me leave the country as soon Mm -hmm. as I got the opportunity to do that do you have any particular memories of of, uh, any discrimination or were you kept you know mostly away from the worst of it or My parents tried their best to just shield me from the worst of it but I know that my my dad was um, denied the opportunity for a faculty position just based on religion. Oh, uh, I knew that, yeah, there were some classmates who would just be rude to me and, you know, bully me because mm-hmm. I was, um, you know, from a different religion. Uh, so all of those things did, you know, affect it, did affect us to some extent. So my parents were like, um, you know, the situation here isn't getting any better, so maybe you know, if you find opportunities abroad, that would be better for you. But don't get me wrong. I love my country, yeah, and I have, yeah, like, definitely. amazing friends and teachers who, you know, really support me. And not everyone is like that, but a lot of people also yeah, are. Yeah, so when I first came to New York, I rode the subway, and there were people of all colors all fashion senses <laughs> there were people with the big afros people who had green colored hair yeah, yeah, um yeah. like just the diversity in w- this one uh you know train that i was sitting at just like looking across you know the train and just looking at so many different kinds of people from all over the world and that was the first time i realized that you know, I realized how illuminating and, you know, encouraging um, diversity can be, like the power of diversity. Because mm. when I'm one of them, I felt that, okay, this means no one's going to... I'm sorry. No, it's good. It's good. 
for the listeners at home, Drake, you've just received a bunch of... <laughs> I don't know. Um, phone messages. Very popular. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry about that. But oh, yeah, cool. Cool. as I was saying, so when I was on the train, I, I just... That was one of... A, a big moment of revelation for me that, wow, this can be, you know, this is what diversity looks like. Because back home, you know, everyone's brown. You don't see a non, not brown people. Um, and the other terms of diversity is like religion mostly. Mm, yeah, so, definitely. yeah, that's the other criteria. But here, all different races, religions, fashion senses, um, sexual identification, like all different things. And I was like amazed by that one scene, uh, my first subway ride in New York and I was like oh I I don't know you know what's coming for me but at least here I'm not going to be discriminated against mm. um, so yeah so that was the positive the negative was uh, the culture shock like right, I didn't yeah. know how to navigate subway I didn't know how to order a sandwich or a coffee <laughs> I would always go up to the barista and freeze because oh my god I'm gonna say something wrong and sound stupid <laughs> um, yeah so all of those things uh, were hard in the beginning but then um, it all became easier yeah. over time and yeah. definitely but in the beginning, I was very, very scared of speaking up in class or in discussion sections, not because I didn't know the material, but just because I was afraid of sounding stupid and I was ashamed of my accent. But uh, Colombia also had a very diverse environment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there were people, and I had a, a really blessed to have a wonderful international cohort of students from all over the world. And they all had their respective accents. So yeah, over yeah, time, yeah. you know, as I hung out with them and, you know, as I realized that, okay, this is really, no one else is thinking about this except for me. Mm. Um, that was uh, easier to get over. Just circling back to, to doing research and um, just in general, like, like, how do you think all of that sort of filters into you know, uh, engineering heart tissue and doing bioengineering and stuff like that. Yeah, so um, definitely both the research I did at Columbia and the research I'm doing now at Yale, both of uh, these are very, I would say, cutting edge. Mm -hmm. And some it's a new technology. It's, you know, trying to address problems that uh, this whole team of scientific, this whole scientific community has been unable to sort of crack into in the previous years. Mm -hmm. Or maybe, you know, it wasn't something that was of pressing um, interest. Um, and I know that I was recently looking at this um, Report. Uh, so Bangladesh doesn't really have a lot of um, bench research facilities, um, or I would say very little, if any at all. Um, there, there is clinical research going on, but very few bench research opportunities, even in the best universities. And the I'm main sorry, what's bench research? Bench research is um, I'm ref when I say bench research, I'm um, I'm referring to wet lab research, oh, what you okay, do in a okay. lab, okay, okay. essentially a lab where you can you know, do all this cell culture stuff right, and everything. Right. So, it, so Bangladesh doesn't really have that. That academic environment is not there. 
Um, and that is primarily because a lot of this money that, you know, uh, we uh, the money behind all this research work comes from the government in the case of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, my work is funded by a NIH grant. NIH is National Institutes of Health. Yeah. Um, but in Bangladesh, there is not really a central body like that that can fund, like, uh, health research. Maybe there are, but even the funding is, like, I'm sure pretty limited. So there is clinical research, though, like epidemiology and things like that. But this kind of wet lab research is uncommon. And since coming to the U.S., I have definitely learned to appreciate the importance of this more. Mm -hmm. And I was, like I was saying, um, I recently read a report about how many ER cases, emergency room cases in Bangladesh, lead to sudden cardiac death. Um, sudden cardiac death is when a person who never had any problems, heart problems before, no complaints at all, suddenly just uh, passes away because of a, a heart failure. And this is exactly the kind of thing what the disease I'm working on, which is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, uh, does. It is the leading cause of death in the young population. And these people just die randomly um, one day uh, of heart failure, whereas they've never seen anything wrong with their heart in previous um, previous you know check-ins with their physicians. This is because the screening method does not exist. No one thinks, oh, let me go and check if I have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or anything, right? Um, So, yeah, so this is super important. Um, This patient-specific treatment that um, scientists are working so hard in the U.S. and um, also other parts of the world now uh, to promote because uh, there is no one-size-fits-all kind of uh, treatment for um, some kinds of diseases. So in Bangladesh, we are far from that. So I was wondering when I was looking at that report that a huge amount of people, you know, were, you know, they just passed away from sudden cardiac death. And there was no, like the report mentioned nothing. Like we investigated uh, further why, why, they just uh, why they just died. Yeah, they were just giving us a number, and I was wondering. I wonder what percent of that has to do with a familial mutation. Yeah, like, right. if if they were screened, I'm sure uh, you can do that. And maybe yes, you can. Maybe not. You may not be able to save that person who has passed away, but you can screen the other fam- family members and prevent the same from happening to them as well. So. Um, the importance of personalized medicine is so important um, in today's world. And um, we haven't done this yet, but I imagine that in the subsequent years, as this pipeline becomes more and more common, uh, that we can get families uh, or people with this mutation to uh, use our research to consult with their physicians about uh, treatment regimens and plans. Uh, So that's the end goal right there, that... um, patient-specific treatment. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming. Uh, This has been Shreti Holder talking about her work uh, doing biomedical engineering, growing heart tissues. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Yeah. See you. Thank you for listening to the PhD podcast project from Yale's Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And don't forget to subscribe and check out other episodes on our website.